says, get that India, big boy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Pablo's, and we are privileged to have the great, the legendary Brett Kenny joining us live. Everyone, Brett Kenny. Now, mate, being here at uh, Parramatta Leagues Club, this would bring back memories for you, because I think from recollection, you worked here as a cellarman many, many years ago. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, 1981, I started in the cellar and um, walking across from the, the stadium, I, I looked over where the cellar is and you can't get through there now. You know, we used to have all the trucks through, the deliveries there, and, but I had some great times and um, had a lot of fun. Uh, I remember, I think it was the 81 grand final, we, um, the week leading into that game, I, I came out, someone had had a broken leg or something and had some crutches, so I borrowed the crutches and started walking around the lounge and the, and the fl- uh, on the bottom floor and, and uh, everyone started to question me what was going on. I said, oh, I think I've done my foot, I can't run and, you know, I might be out and that was it. So I had a bit of fun there. It was great. Yeah. In fact, uh, I, act- I actually worked here myself in 80 and 81 and there was, always seemed there was a few Parramatta players that were on the roster. And I, I do have to ask you one question. It wasn't unusual for me to see Peter Sterling's name down on the same shift as me, and I used to think to myself, I'm going to get to work with Sterlo this week. I- I'm going to tell you, I never worked one shift with him. No, it's amazing. He um, always managed to have his name on the roster but never seemed to turn up. <laughs> and um, I think it was the same. when he. I remember when he started working at TWS and used to do the sports report, and he, they, we ended up finding out they used to ring him. He was at home. <laughs> He missed, missed the, um, the alarm, he was at home, they rang him, so he used to do the sports report over the phone. See, he was actually probably, you know, they used to say he was several plays ahead of himself, but in fact, he was decades ahead of the work-from-home <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> exactly. Now, Brett, your renown in NRL or rugby league as it was back then is as a 5'8", and one of the greatest of all time, but what positions, if any, did you play as a young kid? Uh, outside of 5'8", sorry. Well, basically, when I was a young bloke, I started as a 5'8", and then as I got older, become a teenager, I ended up playing in the centres. And that was probably basically it for me. I was a centre when I got graded at Parramatta, and, um, yeah, from there, I, I played in the centres in 1980, outside Mick Cronin, and then in 81, when Jack Gibson arrived, I think sort of midway through the year, he put me in as 5'8", and I used to shot, uh, swap around with... With Steve Ella and myself and Steve Ella would play 5-8. It was a case of whenever a scrum went down, whoever was closest to the scrum would slip into 5-8 and the other bloke would play in the centre. So, uh, And then later on I sort of became a permanent 5-8. So, yeah, probably 5-8 and centre were probably the two main positions I played as a kid. Well, I actually have some stats on that. So you spent 163 games at 5-8. 79 in the centre and you've mentioned about during uh, Gibbo's years that that, that, was, that was a fairly even sort of split during that between 5-8 and centre. Did he actually like to alternate you and Zip or was it a case of what you just said where whoever was closest to the scrum would go in at 
Yeah, it was basically that, whoever was closest, and, and Jack didn't have a problem with it. I, I guess he looked at the, the situation and thought, well, both of us could play the, the position. There wasn't, he wasn't going to lose anything by having either one of us there. So that was the way we, we played it. I guess the problem might have been for Mick Cranon. Every time he, he'd look outside of him, he'd, he'd have a different guy there. But, but um, yeah, that was the way we played, and it, it seemed to work. We, we won four premierships. Not a bad result, isn't it? So you didn't have a really particular high preference between centre and 5-8 when all was said and done. It's just to get the ball into your hands and... You know. Well, I always preferred to play 5-8 only because I was closer to the play. Makes sense. Um, I, I felt that when I was playing in the centres, I was out a bit wider, I wasn't close to the play and I used to get a bit bored, I guess. I, I was never a guy to, to go looking for the ball. I used to stay, always kept my positional play. That was very important to me, so... Um, but yeah, being at a 5-8 was more of a case of closer to the play, got my hands on the ball a lot more, so I enjoyed it. Now, I'd like to cast your mind back to a game in 1983 against North Sydney. It was at North Sydney Oval. Uh, and in that game, you played fullback. And it was in the wet. And Jack Gibson moved you out of that position in the second half and he said, and I, I was thinking about this today because we've got a wet day today, uh, but he said something along the lines of, as Gibson can, that you, he moved you because you were busy dodging the raindrops at fullback. Do you, do you recall that comment from Gibbo? Oh, look, I, I, I'm struggling to remember what happened two weeks ago, let alone what <laughs> happened back in 1983, but it wouldn't surprise me and, and um, I guess when he, if he had said that, he I probably didn't do too much at fullback. I was probably not <laughs> running around or, or joining into the back line. So, um, yeah, I, and I guess that was, was probably the last time I played fullback too. Yeah, I, think. I, I, think I, think I, I think you are listed as one, yeah. one, one game at fullback. Is that, was, would that, something like that have been regarded as a Gibbo's spray? Is that, is that about as tough as he would get or could he get, um, you know, very direct and to the point? Well, I, I guess it was probably... Probably as, as tough as he would get. I, I, I think if, if he wasn't real happy with the way you were doing anything, he wouldn't tell anyone else. Yeah. He wouldn't say something like that. He would actually speak to you personally and, and that. So, I mean, it's the same as whenever he dropped anyone. Um, you're always called into Jack's office and, and uh, t ex he would explain as to why you've been dropped and, and you'd know well before the team was announced for the following weekend. So... I was very fortunate that I never, I would probably, technically I might have been dropped, but I always believe I, I was never dropped to reserve grade. Be, well, could have been rested, yes. So I got, I got arrived at training and uh, would have been 1982, oh sorry, 1983, went away on a kangaroo tour in 82. So when I came back, I just went straight back into training, never had a rest. So I was obviously tired midway through the season and I had... I got out of the car at Granville Park where we were training and, and someone came up and said, Jack wants to see you in his office. So I've gone weak at the knees, you know. You don't <laughs> want to see Jack in his office. And so off I've gone and I sat down and he said, look, I'm going to give you a rest. I'm not going to play you this week. And I said, well, Jack, I haven't missed a game in two years. He said, well, that's fine. He said, if you want to play, you can play reserve grade. <laughs> and I said, well, no, OK. He said, right, we'll have a rest. He said grab your bag, go and get in your car, go home. I don't want to see you until next Tuesday. So give me the whole week off. And, and I guess that he realised that I was tired. I'd had too much football. And, and the same thing happened to me in 87. 
after the kangaroo tour in 86, you know, with, and it was he's the type of guy that sort of knows that. He knows so much about his players, and that was one of the, the good things about Jack. Yeah, for all the things that he's known as, as for a master coach, I guess it is that knowing the players that made him who he was. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, when I finished playing football, I went into a bit of coaching and, and I coached at Penrith, and I was actually quite surprised that up there, the first grade coach never told the guys why they were dropped. He just said, you're not playing first grade, you're back in reserve grade. And never told them why. And, and Jack would do that. He would always tell you why. And, and he, was, he knew, he could tell you who the kid was that was sitting on the bench in the under-23s. I'd have no idea who the kid was sitting on the bench in the under-23s. We used to train in, in coloured teams and, and we'd have guys from first grade, reserve grade, under-23s. But you'd virtually know those guys that's in your colour team. But the other guys you wouldn't know necessarily because you didn't see them and that. But Jack was there every week watching them. He could tell you who the guy was on the bench and, and that was the thing about him. He, he took interest in every player and I think that's how he gained. He gained a lot of respect from players. And I always say to people, you know, there could be a brick wall there. If he said run through it, we knew we probably couldn't, but we'd give it a shot. Yeah. Now... This is something I think about a lot, Brett, um, and it, it pops into my mind quite often. The 81 to 86 Eels are one of rugby league's greatest dynasties, uh, and yet barely any of them, if any, seem to come into conversation as an immortal. All that talk now seems to be centred around recently retired players. You're talking Jonathan Thurston and now Cameron Smith as he's retired. Um, for Parramatta supporters, the men from those teams are always going to be immortals. But from your perspective, what do you think you guys don't feature in that sort of conversation you know, as an all, like, obviously you are all timers and all famers, but for some reason you don't get much consideration as a mortal. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't know. I, I, it, I guess it's probably hard to understand. People talk about current players now. They're already talking about possibly changing the rules to allow Cameron Smith to be in. I just can't see that happening. You know, everyone else has had to wait five years from the time they retired or longer to be named an immortal so I really can't see why they should start changing it now and but I, yeah I, I it is a bit hard to understand that you know a lot of guys from Parramatta don't sort of get mentioned and um, I look at myself for example there are two immortals now in Mal Meninga and Wally Lewis and I replaced them in in uh, mm -hmm. and two kangaroo tours I was replaced Wally in the 1982 tour uh, I, I played 5-8 while he was on the bench. 1986, I replaced Mal Meninga in the centres. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I look at it that way. That's a good thing that these two guys are immortals because I can say, well, I'm the only player that's ever <laughs> knocked them out of their position. That, that is a very good out outlook on that, Mark. OK, this next question is probably not a question that many people who've played for the Eels can answer. Which premiership is your favourite? Oh, well, I guess, I guess I'd have to say 1981, and then a close second would be 1986 for two totally different reasons. But 1981 was the first grand final I'd ever played in. I never, I was never fortunate enough to play in a grand final as a kid. So yeah, it was, it was great to play your first grand final as a, as a first grade uh, grand final. To win that was, I and mean, obviously being the first grand final Parramatta had won, it was something very special. Um, 1986 was a special grand final because of 
Ray Price and Mick Craner were both retiring at the end of that grand final and it was, it was great to be able to send them out with a victory. So, but out of the two, I guess I'd, have to, I'd say 1981. Just on that, that 86 grand final, uh, there's been the documentary that Adam Hawes uh, put together recently and um, one of the things that came through was how tight the team was. Um, uh, is that a, a big part of the recipe for success, to have a, a really tight-knit team? Yeah, look, I, I think it is. I, I've been saying that for quite a while now, that I believe the reason we were so successful was because we were so tight. We, we had, um, you know, a lot of... We were like brothers, you know, and, I mean, Ray Price played a big part in that. Um, I think from the time from probably 1981 through till he retired in, 90, in 1986. Every time we had a New Year's Eve party, it was his place. And all the players were there and their wives and girlfriends. So, um, yeah, we, we've stuck together a lot. We used to go out a lot um, as young folks. And, and I, I think, you know, that was probably the, the recipe for success for us because we, we were like brothers and we stuck up for each other and looked out for each other. I, look, I have to say, I'm, I'm also glad that you mentioned 81, and I'm going to say this just before I have a, a, a sip of the Jack's Pale Ale. Um, I was at the game. I came back to the club afterwards. I, I can only imagine what it must have been like for you to be in this club after we won the grand final for the first time. I, I know I didn't buy a drink all night. Uh, I was walking around with a glass, and it just seemed to get filled up as I was walking around. Um, there's some memories that are a little bit hazy, but, man, that was... I can only imagine the people here who are not of the age that would have attended back in 81, I can only imagine that they're going to go through something similar when we do win again. Well, we certainly hope so, you know. I, I remember coming back to the, to the Leeds Club and we came back by bus and we, we actually got as far as Church Street... We were on Victoria Road and we had to stop just as we got across Church Street. We couldn't go any further because of all the people. Um, we finally got back to the club. We had to get out of the bus and get on top of a uh, tabletop truck, Hardy's tabletop truck, because they didn't, couldn't fit anyone else in the club. So a lot of people outside, so they wanted us to get up on the, on the truck so people could see us and, and shake hands and everything. And once that was done... We then had to get on the, the bouncer's shoulders and actually get carried into the club. <laughs> I think the bears told us about <laughs> being carried into the club. I mean, that, that would have been a sight, the bear being lifted well, up and carried Well, I mean, the, the guys deserved double their money if they could have carried <laughs> him in. But, I mean, it was just that, that way it was. It was in the club. We, we went upstairs to a restaurant. We were eating, and, and we could actually see the ceiling of the restaurant bouncing because uh, of the people that were up in the auditorium. And... We finally went up to the auditorium and you could not see the floor. There was that many people there. And I actually saw a young girl faint and she just went back on people. No one had realised she'd fainted because they were jammed in that tight. It was just an amazing night. And it was probably 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning before the players could actually sit down together and have a drink and just talk about what we'd actually achieved. Now, this one might be a tricky question, mate, because you have one of the longer and highly decorated careers in rugby league. But can you single out a game for us which you would regard as your single greatest individual performance? Jeez, I'd like to say there's been that many of them. I that, can't remember. There has been that um, many of them, mate. 
look, I, I guess probably just quickly, probably a game that wasn't played in Australia, it was played in England. It was a Challenge Cup final in 1985. It probably look at that and regard that as probably one of my best, better performances. Oh, that's a good one. 60s, what do you got, mate? Um, yeah, just on now um, to today's game. Would you have enjoyed being a football, uh, full-time footballer in today's game? I'm really not sure. I mean, when we, when we played, we were semi-professional and we always thought it would be great to be a professional footballer. But then when you look at what goes on nowadays, I'm really not sure that, that I would enjoy... I don't think I'd enjoy the game. I, I, I look at the game now, I don't enjoy what I see. I think they've got too many rules in the game now. Um, I heard the other day someone mentioned to me there was something like 15 new rules introduced into the game. In the last two years, it'll be about that, There's yeah. In the last two years, yeah. and, but they haven't taken any rules out. So how the hell is a referee... And I, look, I'm not a big fan of referees, but I feel sorry for a referee. It's a tough I think, how the hell is the referee going to remember all these rules on any given day? And... I also asked, I asked a lot of mates one day, I said, did anyone ever see a, a 20-40 kick last year? And they said, a what? I yeah. said, a 20-40. Yeah. And they said, no, it's a 40-20. I said, no, there was a rule brought in, you can kick a 20-40 mm-hmm. and you get the ball back. Yeah. Even the players can't remember. No, that's right. So no. that's how bad it's getting. They're bringing that many rules in. It's just people can't keep up with it and they want... I remember it was only a few years ago when they had the interchange, they were talking about dropping the number of interchange so that the players would get tired and the game would slow down a bit. Now they're talking about making it quicker. And I just think that you're going to see a lot of drop ball because players are going to get tired, they're not going to concentrate. So therefore, you know, there'll be a lot of drop balls and the game will become an absolute mess until such time as they decide to, to go back and... Listen to what the players have got to say. Like, this is what amazes me. They don't seem to talk to the people that play the game, but they want to tell them this is what you've got to do. And you say, we can't, they're saying, we can't do this. It's too fast. So why not listen to the players? And they say, okay, well, what do we have to do? I just, to me, and I don't know, but I'm taking a guess at a lot of TV executives, they've got a lot to do with the way the games are going. They're putting their mind and saying, this is what the people want. I'm saying, well, Maybe they don't, but if they do, talk to the players. They're the ones that have got to do this, and if they're saying that it's too hard, change it. I'm, the, the rule that I'm really upset with is the play-the-ball restart from the ball going into touch because I'm going to challenge anyone to find one occasion this year where a try is scored off the play-the-ball from the ball going into touch as compared to a try being scored off uh, a scrum? Well, I look at it that way too, you know. I think it was a lot better when there was a scrum. I think it was a lot better for the forwards. They got a little bit of a break, a little bit of a breather, but also from a back's point of view, there's more opportunity to create something. Not that they necessarily did that, but you think you've got five on five and you've got the ball, you can create some sort of play, do something where you might be able to come up with a try. When it's a play the ball, you've got 13 on 13. It, it's, it's not going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. You know? and, and I think I, I, I read where some of the forwards were saying, 
You know, they couldn't believe it. The, the ball would get kicked into touch. They'd run back, they'd turn around, and the blokes got to hit the ball up. And they get an opportunity to have a breather. Now, just into our last couple of questions now, um, and I'm going to continue on with that hypothetical about your playing in the game today, right? What would be different for you? Like, would it be the position you play, your playing weight? Uh, what, what do you think individually would be different for you in this game if you were playing today? Well, I think my playing weight would be one of the big changes because I, I would be doing the same sort of training they're doing. Um, I'd probably be a lot stronger because of the weights and a lot bigger because of the weights. Um, and I, th I think that would be the major change. Whether or not it would have helped the way I played, I don't know. Because when you played, you were at a very similar size and weight to Bevan French. Like when Bevan French, like he, what he was listed at his, as his playing weight and height is virtually identical to yours, and yet he was regarded as being a light, almost yeah. too light for the game. Well, that's right. I played, the heaviest I played at was about 86, 87 kilos. Well, you know, nowadays it, your halfbacks could be that heavy. Yeah. You know, and, and the, but that, that probably would have been the, the, big, the big difference for me, would have been my weight. And my size, I would have probably been muscular because of the weights, and obviously would have been a little bit heavier. Um, I, I, I guess I probably, having known what I know and having played before, I probably wouldn't like the way I'd have to play as a five-eight today. Um, I much preferred to play and be able to go from one side to the other, go wherever I wanted to. The halfback would generally control the play and then I would look after the backs. That wouldn't happen in today's game. But I guess, like anything, if you've never experienced any other way of playing, you probably think today's game's great. You know? but I, I just think that that would be the biggest thing, would be the weight and the, and the strength and that that I would have. Do you, do you think you'd be maybe a fullback? Sorry? Maybe a fullback, being able to play both sides of the park? At, if you were playing today as a prime, well, if I was game? playing, yeah, if I was playing today, obviously, I, if I was playing five eight, I, I would be on the left or right side, and that's where I'd stay. And you know, back when our day, we were allowed to go right, right. from one side yeah. to the other, make an extra man. And I, I don't know how many times I've seen in games where you think you've only they're just locked, in, they're locked, in, locked into both sides, but yeah. just get out there and yeah. there's an opportunity to me, there. To yeah. me, at the moment. We, we used to play, we had a structure. People would think we didn't have a structure, but we had a structure. Today's structures are just so, they're too structured. Yeah. And I, I firmly believe that there's a lot of players running around in the NRL that have got a lot more natural ability than what we see because they're not allowed to do what comes natural to them. And you'll, there's probably guys that could chip over the top where gather, do that perfectly well, but they're told we can't do that because on tackle three, we've got to be there. The, the tackle four, we've got to be there. To and if you've got yeah. the ball and you think you can do, you don't do that. Yeah. But there is one a brilliant exponent of that in the Parramatta Reels team. It's Junior Paulo. Now, Junior doesn't mind throwing that in a training, but I think BA would have a heart attack if Junior <laughs> threw in a chip chase in a game. <laughs> well, he, he probably would, but then again, when you look at it, my view is if he puts it in and they score, I'd be happy. Yeah, true. Yeah. That, that I would true. say to him, no, that'll never happen again. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just think you've got to look at players, and that was one of the things we learned from Jack Gibson, that Jack, 
always looked at players and he said, you know what, you never coach him in the things he can do well, but you coach him in the things he can't do well. And, that, and one of the other problems he, he found with coaches was they overcoach. Mm-hmm. Try and tell guys you've got to do too much and they can't necessarily do what they want. So you look at players, and if someone like Junior Paulo, if, if he can chip over the top and regather or, or he can chip over for someone else and he does it well, I'd be happy to say, mate, if you think the opportunity's there, do it. Yeah. Because the way the game is nowadays, the opposition would never expect that. They would always think front row, hit the ball up, hit the ball up, get an offload every now and then. If you've got someone that can do that, well, you, you'd let them do it. you throw it in. All righty, it's the go-home question now, Brett. But um, you also spent some time as a coach, not just a player. So looking at tonight's game and putting on a coach's hat, what do you think Parramatta need to do to beat the Melbourne Storm? To beat the Melbourne Storm? Look, I, I just think we've got to... We've got to control up the middle. And, you know, we've got to control them. They've got a very good forward pack. They've got some good backs. But I think if we can control the middle of the ruck and we can keep going forward. And that was the biggest problem, I think, last week was, well, two things. I agree with what Brad Arthur said was, I don't think the players respected the opposition. I think last week they went in there thinking, well, we're playing the wooden spooners, we finished third, this will be an easy game. They realised by half-time it's not an easy game. I think tonight, because of who they're playing, they will be a lot better, they'll have a lot more respect, but they need to control the middle of the ruck. We need to be going forward. and. People say the game's changed. Well, the basics are the same. And we saw last week, Parramatta tried to go around, spread the ball wide early, couldn't do anything. They were 16-0 down at halftime. Suddenly they thought, yes, we'll go forward, which is what it used to be. Forwards go forward. You dominate up the middle of the ruck. Yeah, the backs score all the tries. Today's game, the wingers do the fancy dives and score. But it's the forwards that win you the game. And, and that's what they did in the second half. And they've got to do the same thing tonight. The kicking game's got to be outstanding and they've just got to make sure they don't try and throw passes around when they when it's not on. It's just have a good good kicking game, control the middle of the ruck. That might help. It might help get them through the win. Well, Brett, it's been an absolute honour for us to have you uh, join the Cumberland Throw with our uh, podcast tonight. And uh, everyone, if you could uh, round of applause for the great Brett Kenny. Thank you. Thanks, mate.